This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. As soon as we got on the line, I could tell that Bob Moore, who runs a nonprofit news site called El Paso Matters, he wanted me to be careful about how he spoke about his hometown. In the last month, Bob's gotten used to people like Tucker Carlson talking about El Paso like this. In the last year, illegal immigration into El Paso has risen by over 280 percent. This rhetoric is driving Bob nuts. And none of these people are ever leaving. This is an invasion of our country. We don't have a border. It is not an invasion. Nobody's trying to force their way into my home. None of these people are carrying guns. There's nothing that resembles an invasion. By now, you've probably seen the pictures of what's going on in El Paso. Hundreds of people camped out on the street, some sandwiching themselves between cardboard to keep warm. All of these people are desperate, having walked for miles through Mexico to get here. Bob says these pictures aren't wrong, so much as incomplete. In most of the city, it's business as usual. But there are a couple of jammed up places getting a whole lot of attention. And you might not have heard about the volunteers who are keeping these migrants warm and fed. If you were to go down to Sacred Heart Church where this crowd is congregating, you'd see cars pulling up and popping their trunks. Uh, And inside the, the trunk of the car... There would be burritos or sandwiches that the person would jump out and then start handing to the migrants. And when when you talk to them, you ask them, why are you doing this? And they'll say, well, I just saw on TV that there were people who needed some help. So I came down here to help. Wow. And I've literally, literally run into dozens of people. Many of these are immigrants themselves, mostly from Mexico. So they know what the journey is like. Sounds like an informal army. It is. And, and I've, you know, I've been uh, part of this myself in the past. Uh, my wife and I and our family have volunteered at times to prepare a meal for like 100 migrants who are at a given location. One headline writer implied that, imp- that El Paso was being tested by surges in migrants. I guarantee you that headline writer doesn't live in El Paso uh, and probably has never been here before. It's true that migrant surges are getting larger. Last month, in one four-hour period, a 1,000 people streamed across the border, all at once. 
It's starting to abate somewhat for now, but there's there's still going to be lots of challenges going forward. The biggest challenge continues to be taking care of people who, by their own choice for the most part, are refusing to go into shelter uh, and are uh, exposed to the elements. It's cold 24 hours a day here. In addition to getting wet, a few days back, it snowed in El Paso. It's not like it's stuck, but it soaked everyone. When migrants couldn't go indoors, they huddled inside a city bus to keep warm. And those who didn't make it inside the bus are sleeping out here, layered up and bundled up next to each other. Now I did speak with some migrants. You mentioned that the surges that you were seeing in December have abated a bit in the last few days. Does that mean the crisis is ending? No, it just means it's been kind of pushed back. And when we only decide to talk about migration uh, when it arrives at our, our doorstep here in El Paso, we're missing the point. Today on the show, why El Paso's border crisis is about more than just the border. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
if you asked Bob Moore a year ago, he would have described El Paso's migrant situation as relatively calm. And the main reason for that, he says, is that it wasn't El Paso's turn. One important thing to understand about the border is that the location of migration shifts over time largely out of the control of anybody uh, in the United States. The, most of the migration through Mexico is controlled by drug cartels. And so they kind of decide, okay, we're going to send you to El Paso or we're going to send you to Del Rio or Arizona or wherever the, the case may be. And that shifts from time to time. And so El Paso, for since basically about 2019, has been very calm in terms of the number of people crossing. That began to change in late summer uh, when we began to see the arrival of thousands and thousands of people from Venezuela. It's not like these Venezuelan migrants were involved with the drug trade. They were simply fleeing political chaos at home. But to get across the southern border, you need all the help you can get. So the smugglers uh, in Venezuela, in this example, uh, will work with the Mexican cartels to sort of derive a path for for these people to go. Uh, And everybody gets a cut of the money along the way. And so I don't have... It, um, intelligence networks that the uh, U.S. government does. So I don't know what the reason is for why the cartel said, OK, we're going to send Venezuelans to El Paso. Huh. But that's what they did. And so starting uh, in late August, we started to see this huge, huge arrival. And we have this problem with the Venezuelans uh, because unlike prior migrant groups, they did not have connections in the United States, did not have sponsors. And so they start to to really build up here uh, because they don't know where to go, and there's this crisis of of trying to you know figure out where they want to go. Well, and also, wasn't it that the public health regulations, Title Forty Two, which was a way to you know basically bounce people out of the country, that was initiated in the Trump administration and continued under President Biden, it didn't really apply to Venezuelans, and so there was no mechanism to not let them into the country. That's correct. This regulation, Title 42, it's key to understanding the mess in El Paso, Bob says. Since the Trump administration put it in place, it's been used as migration control of last resort. It allows border agents to send migrants out of the country before they can apply for asylum. It's supposed to stop the spread of COVID. But this regulation has been applied unevenly. The reason Venezuelans were flooding the border over the summer was because Title 42 did not apply to them. The U.S. doesn't have a diplomatic relationship with Venezuela, meaning there was nowhere for border agents to send migrants who came from there. But the strain of so many people flooding in, it led Washington to find a workaround. The Biden administration struck a deal with Mexico uh, where Mexico agreed to take a certain number of uh, Venezuelan expulsions. And so at that point, the United States began immediately expelling Venezuelan migrants to Juarez from El Paso. The expulsions started happening in October. The problem with this move was that the Biden administration had been publicly saying it didn't like Title 42 that much. They'd been setting one deadline after another to end the policy completely. And then there was this court ruling in mid-November where a federal judge in Washington said, "Okay, we're going to end Title 42 on December 21st. 
So picture yourself. You're a Venezuelan migrant. You've seen lots of people like you make their way into the U.S. over the summer. Suddenly, your own route into the U.S. is cut off when Title 42 snaps into place for you. But a few weeks later, you hear, maybe this whole policy is going to go away completely. So you stick around the Mexican border and you wait. But then Title 42 doesn't end. The Supreme Court has issued an emergency order keeping Title 42 in place for now. And that's what's causing the problem in El Paso. In a five to four decision, the justices decided the policy can stay in place as they wait to hear arguments in February. After several weeks of waiting in Mexico for the end of Title 42, uh, hundreds if not thousands of Venezuelans then became extraordinarily frustrated and then decided to just cross anyway. And instead of coming up and surrendering to the Border Patrol, which has been the primary means of uh, crossing and seeking asylum in the United States, these Venezuelans began evading the Border Patrol Uh, making more dangerous crossings, uh, you know, jumping border walls and things like that, and then coming into El Paso. And because they had not been processed by the Border Patrol, they could not be taken into the city's shelter networks because the city would not get federal reimbursement for them. Um, Then the Catholic Diocese and Annunciation House, the primary NGO that that handles migrants, uh, stood up a couple of new uh, parish-based shelters. But still many of those Venezuelan migrants would not leave the streets. They were afraid. um, They didn't trust people. Exactly. I mean, and uh, for obvious reasons, they didn't trust people, right? They come from a collapsed society. They were exploited uh, in many ways along their journey. Some of them were kidnapped. Uh, And so, you know, naturally there's this fear. So uh, because they're kind of in this never-never land, they're stuck on the streets of El Paso without Border Patrol documents. They can't really legally travel in the United States. So they can't jump on a Greyhound bus and go to another city. So they have to find illicit transportation networks. So the humanitarian crisis in El Paso right now is almost entirely based on this uncertainty over Title 42 and that kind of the, the, the herky-jerky nature of that policy in recent weeks. Well, it's interesting because, you know, in November, some Republican attorneys general basically pointed out that the Department of Homeland Security projects that 9,000 to 14,000 migrants might attempt to cross the southern border daily when Title 42 ends. And what's interesting about El Paso is that Title 42 hasn't ended, and it applies very much to these Venezuelan migrants, but it doesn't seem to be preventing any kind of border crisis. It's instead creating a huge mess. Yeah, it's it's creating a new kind of crisis and, and sort of really extending the crisis. So instead of, you know, just ripping the Band-Aid off and dealing with the end of Title 42, we've decided to, you know, peel it back a little bit and then try to tamp it back down and peel it back a little bit more. You know, that's just not effective policy. And there are, you know, human lives uh, that are being directly impacted by these decisions and lack of decisions. It sounds like the Supreme Court will hear arguments about Title 42 in February. What are you anticipating happening then? Like, I was interested to see how the justices talked about Title 42 
currently. And it was interesting to me because Justice Neil Gorsuch, who's a conservative, he he ruled with the liberals. And he basically said, you know, courts shouldn't be in the business of perpetuating administrative edicts. And we should get out of this because this isn't about COVID. This is about something else. And to me, that seemed correct. That seemed, that seemed like the right answer. But it also meant like, I, I don't know what's going to happen when the Supreme Court weighs in here. And it's important to note that the Supreme Court is not even taking up the legality of Title 42 at this point. They're only addressing an extraordinarily narrow question of whether the states even have standing to intervene here. And so the court's going to schedule oral arguments in February. You know, if tradition holds, they're probably not going to render a decision until late spring, maybe as late as June. And so you have this continuing uncertainty for border communities like El Paso, but more importantly, for these, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of migrants who are trying to figure out how to get to a safe place. And so uh, it's it's been a very, very bizarre fight, to say the least. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is like, this is going to take so long. And in the meantime, El Paso is just going to be riding these waves of migrants who will continue to come. And, and at the end of the day, we still have no policy on immigration or asylum or anything like that. And, you know, there's some speculation that, you know, maybe Congress can use this time while the Supreme Court's wrestling it out to come up with a more uh, permanent solution to it. And when I've seen those suggestions, my initial reaction is, uh, have you been watching the same Congress I've been watching? Because I I don't see that happen. When we come back, how politically weaponizing this human crisis makes it harder to solve. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Given unpredictable migration patterns and ever-changing federal immigration policy, leaders in El Paso have been left in a tough spot. How do they get what they need? to provide for this surge of new residents. You could see this confusion play out over the last month as El Paso's mayor went back and forth over whether to declare a state of emergency in the city. Eventually, he did do that. But Bob Moore still wonders if that was the right call. I'm still not clear on what has been accomplished. There was this hope that If they declared a state of emergency, then the governor's office would send help in housing migrants and in uh, transporting them to 
regional bus hubs in Denver, Dallas, Phoenix, places like that, where they would be face an easier opportunity to connect to where they want to go. Again, that's a complete fantasy. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas is not going to provide that kind of assistance and has not since the uh, the mayor issued its his disaster declaration. So very little has changed functionally on the ground since that disaster declaration. You had a couple of uh, very conservative members of the city council that were sort of egging him on, as well as city staff kind of egging him on to do this. Uh, But he was never quite sure what good it would accomplish. And that question still has not been answered. Looking at the last few weeks of back and forth in El Paso, it seems to me that there are layers of authority that are often clashing Like you've got the mayor who's in favor of certain interventions and the city council, the governor, all pushing in slightly different ways. And then there are the people in border control. And I wonder if it feels like that to you actually in El Paso. Uh, Sure, because, again, the one part of government, the federal government that's responsible under the Constitution for these kinds of issues has abdicated its responsibilities. You know, normally in times of a a disaster, you know, FEMA would handle something like that. And FEMA's provided money passing through to local NGOs and local governments, but has really not concentrated any of its efforts uh, on the ground to help. And then you have a state government in Texas that basically sees these immigration issues as a performative opportunity to show the Republican base that they're doing things when they're really not. So we see all of these performative things, whether it's, you know, sending the National Guard out to unroll concertina wire down by the Rio Grande uh, and videotaping these, you know, confrontations with the migrants and then, you know, kind of ignoring what happens 15 minutes later, which is the migrants walk 50 yards to the east and cross over there where there's no concertina wire. So we have all of this performative stuff going on. So where a community like El Paso essentially becomes a prop. Yeah. You're pretty clear about how you feel about the federal government and their involvement here. And I've read that Joe Biden has said in 2023 he is plotting to talk about comprehensive immigration reform. You sound pretty doubtful about whether that could happen or not, simply because Congress is Congress. But you're also pointing to simpler interventions that could help, like sending FEMA down. Do you have any hope for something like that? Uh, Not really. I mean, if, if it was there, we would have seen it by now. And I think the fact that, you know, Republicans are taking control of the House really um, decreases the likelihood that any of that is going to occur, whether it's on a big picture level like immigration reform or a smaller level like providing additional money to FEMA to help in in border communities. Everything is so politicized. And I, I think it's worth pointing out that the federal government is paralyzed here largely because the electorate of this country is paralyzed. What do you mean? We've become... Um, divided on so many issues, but probably none more clearly than on immigration. And so you have uh, particularly Republican members of Congress who are are scared to death to do anything that looks like compromise on this issue. You have Democrats uh, who aren't quite sure what to do. And even a lot of Democrats, their first instinct whenever 
you discuss immigration reform is to talk about border security and let's send more border patrol agents. And again, it, it, it's this continuation of the way we have discussing immigration in this country. It's a military approach, police approach. It's because it's a border issue. Uh, and, and so... Um, so as long as we continue to do that, we'll continue hiring or trying to hire more and more Border Patrol agents. Border Patrol struggles to hire their allotment of agents as it is. And so where we're going to get an extra 20,000 people or a million people or whatever the final number winds up being is really unclear. Instead of a border crisis, would you want us to talk about it as a humanitarian crisis, a refugee crisis? What language would you suggest? It is a global issue. I think that's where we have to start. But in our context, it really is a hemispheric issue. And now, uh, you know, basically from Mexico down to Tierra del Fuego, you have lots of instability out there that's causing uh, people to leave their homes. And I think we have to start with an understanding that that's not an easy decision for people to make. And so the fact that so many are doing it, it speaks volumes about the situation that they're leaving. So when you talk to basically any Venezuelan uh, who's come up through the Darien Gap since this summer. That's a jungle in Panama. It's a jungle, densely jungled area in Panama. Very, very difficult area to cross, but it's sort of the only migration pattern and has been for a number of years, the only real migration pattern from South America. All of these people will tell you that they watched people die on this journey. And what has always struck me every time I hear these stories is that these people view this as their best available option. And so to to suggest that, you know, there's something that we can do to militarize the border that's going to dissuade them from coming is missing the reality of, of what's going on. The challenge is that addressing the root causes of migration is a multi-generational challenge. And we have an immediate political issue at the U.S.-Mexico border. And so far, we've addressed both the immediate and the long-term challenges by basically kicking the can down the road. Bob, I am super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Bob Moore is the founder and CEO of El Paso Matters. That's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Victoria Dominguez. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with an assist from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond makes sure I read all the ads. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter, say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... 
First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.